6. I don't know why I said that. Deuteronomy 6. We're going to start in verse 4. And this is, this verse right here is what many people know as the Shema. And Deuteronomy 6.4, some people include verse 5 as well, but this is probably one of the most well-known verses in the world and has been so for thousands of years. Let's read it. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word here at the beginning is where they get the Shema from. That's the Hebrew word for here. But what we have to know right away is that this word here doesn't just mean take in auditory lessons, right? It doesn't just mean hear sound vibrations come into your ears and that's where it stops. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. When this, when this passage and other passages in the Old Testament, so many more, say hear, O Israel, or hear me, God is saying, it's saying hear, apply, or hear, internalize, and apply. Hear the message that you're being given with your ears, internalize it, like believe it, and then apply it with action in your life. It's so much deeper than just listening to somebody speaking or reading somebody's words. This is so much more important. He's saying, God is saying through Moses, Hear, O Israel, hear, people of God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now we know that God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's three in one, one in three. We serve one God. We don't serve three gods. We serve one God. But in this context, what Moses is trying to tell these people that are about to go into the land that is so foreign to them, filled with pagan gods, filled with cultures that don't acknowledge God, he's saying that the God that you serve is alive. There's only one living God, and he's alive, and his name is Yahweh. As you go into this new chapter, as you go into the land of Canaan with Asherah poles and Baals and Molechs and all these different pagan gods that are going to overshadow you as a culture. He's saying, as you go, you need to listen and remember the truth that the God you serve is the living God. He's alive and active, and there's only one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And how cool is it that this morning, Calvary Derby Hill, we can echo, kind of join the chorus of people that have been saying this for thousands of years. Think of this. Millions of people for thousands of years have been repeating this verse, and we can say with full confidence on this side of the cross, Hear, O Derby Hill, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Let me translate it more to just how we would feel it, how we would internalize it as Christians today. Hear, O Derby Hill, the Lord that you serve is alive. He has a name, and he's the only one. Isn't that amazing? Did you know that people who follow Judaism... They repeat this verse, and probably four and five, every evening and every morning. This verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That sounds familiar, and there's a reason that sounds familiar, and we're going to pick up on that later. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Addressing the adults in, the, in his midst, addressing the leaders in the community, everybody that can hear him, he is saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the second thing he says is, You should love him. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. Do you think that Moses, after the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thinks it's important for us to know that one of the chief concerns, if not the chief concern of our life, is that we love God? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he's alive. There's only one of him, and you should love him. And he says, these words that I'm giving you today should be on your heart. And you're like, what words? Is he talking about verse 5? 
No, he's, he's probably talking about the chapter before this when he repeats the Ten Commandments that were originally given at Mount Sinai. But even bigger than that, he's probably referring to everything that you're reading and listening to from the book of Deuteronomy as a whole. He says, these words that I've commanded you today should be on your heart. And here's where I want to begin today. Parents, grandparents, guardians, adults in the church who see other kids running around in the church. Before we can teach our children, before we can instruct our grandchildren, we have to ask the question, do we love Jesus? You know, you've heard phrases like it's better caught than taught. You've heard phrases like that, right? And those, that's very true. You've heard stuff like, hey, you've got to model these things in front of your kid instead of just teaching them the truth. And you, 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 there's kernels of truth in that, but it's just so logical to us, isn't it? We can't take somebody where we haven't been. You've heard statements like that, but it gets down to the heart of it. I need to be able to tell my kids, my wife and my kids with integrity, that God is good, he loves me, and I love him, although I'm, I do it imperfectly. It begins with us. Do we love the Lord? Do we know the Lord? And he says, as we begin, he says, these, these words of mine, these instructions from Moses inspired by the Holy Spirit straight from God says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. He says, you shall teach them, these words, diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the door of your house and on your gates. There's a reason why this passage is in every family ministry book. Partially because of what we just read. You shall teach them diligently to who? Your children. Thought to Moses of the people of God, what I would call outsourcing the faith training of their children to somebody else would be a completely foreign thought. It wouldn't make any sense. Moses is saying to these people, as they're entering into the land of Canaan or about to, make sure that these laws are on your heart. Meditate on them. Dwell on them. Internalize them. Obey them. Turn around then and diligently instruct your kids in what? In the law of God. Did you know that every major catechism in the history of the church includes the Ten Commandments? Like every major memorization uh, catechism or, or met, uh, catechism training in churches for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, time and time again, you'll see instruction on the Ten Commandments, and it's partly because of this. Did you know that the law of God is not bad? Did you know that the law of God is not evil? Did you know that God gave the law through Moses so that his people would flourish? Even in the context of this passage that we're reading from today, and you wish you could just unpack all of it, but there are blessings connected to the people of God obeying the commands of God, and there are curses from God for the people of God disobeying the commands of God when they get into Canaan. And you know what they did? They disobeyed all of them. And you know what we do? We disobey all of them. Can't wait. We talk about grace today. But I want to tell you to begin with that the law of God is good. I would go so far as to say the law of God is beautiful. The psalmist would say it's like honey to his lips. My goodness, the word of God, the law, <laughs> although we've, we're on this side of the cross and we'll talk about that, the law of God is not bad. 
He says you shall teach them diligently to your children. And although family is difficult, and although I've never met a parent that feels like they have it all together, sometimes they act, some act like they do, but you and I can be honest with each other today and say, hey, family's difficult. I really don't know what I'm doing. I would resonate with you. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And babies don't come with an instruction manual, and there's so many books out there, but Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is about to give us just some simple, practical, rhythmic, natural instruction on when to disciple your kids. Kind of a how, but also when. Moses says, you, make sure, you, diligently, you dwell on these things. You internalize these things for yourself, the law of God. And then turn around, diligently teach your children. The question that we would ask is, how? <laughs> what? How? Moses, this is a task that's too big for us. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. What I love about this is so much, so much of the time we hear statements like, well, it's better caught than taught, like we said earlier. Well, you've got to model it. It's not so much teaching and model it. It's kind of like when people say the phrase, they misquote other people, and they say, you know, when you share the gospel, sometimes use words, right? When necessary, use words. And you're like, no, you can't gospel without using words. And I would say, you cannot teach your children about God without using words. And Moses would say, as you sit in your house is the first instruction. What I love about this, it's an intentional, I would say maybe formal in that it's intentional sectioned off time where you teach your kids or grandkids about who God is, what he's done, and what he wants us to do with that information. So this isn't, in other words, this isn't haphazard or just in a natural day-to-day routine. This is something that is intentionally planned, set aside time as you sit in your house to formally teach your kids what the Bible says. Does that make sense? I love this because I want to free you up to be able to do that. So much of the time, our Christian culture would say, no, catechism, throw it out. No, you know, like scripture memory and all that stuff, throw it out. Haven't you heard about grace? No, just live your life. And I would say, don't sell yourself short with that. Under the grace of Jesus Christ and because of what he's done and his fulfillment of the law, we can with confidence and joy section off time in our schedule somewhere, somehow, to formally educate our children and grandchildren in who God is, what he's done, and what he's called us to do. Don't be afraid of that. Also, you're not going to have all the answers. Moses didn't ask you to have all the answers. God isn't asking you to have all the answers. Be yourself. Be honest. But Moses would say, teach them diligently when, Moses, when you sit in your house. He goes on to the next thing. He says, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. I love this. In the day-to-day rhythm of life. I picture, for some reason, what always comes to my mind is like when you're in the minivan picking up your kid from junior high. You know, like, or when you've got to go to the store and you don't have a babysitter and so you... You, you bring your kid with you, and you're doing the mundane things in life. Or you're watching the older sibling play soccer on the field, and you're sitting next to the younger sibling on the bleachers, and it's just something you're doing. It's not something necessarily you might want to do. It's not some official Bible study time or anything. It's not really sectioned off. The focus is soccer. And yet you can teach them about who God is, and you can model in front of them who God is. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? If you're in a restaurant... And this waiter has been treated like garbage all day long by Christians, right? By people who claim Christ. No tips. Complaining about the hardness of the bread. 
complaining about how long it takes, eye rolls, sighs. Can you imagine going to a restaurant with your kids or grandkids and treating that waitress or waiter like they're the most important people in the world? And telling them, you know, I don't know, I don't know you, I don't know your story, but I want to tell you something that uh, God saved me and transformed my life. And I know that he is willing and ready to transform yours. You are loved and you're created with a purpose. And your kids see that. It's not a show. Don't do it for a show. But can, can you imagine the impact when your kids see that? That's in a regular routine of life. Moses would say, yeah, teach them, section off some time. Teach them literally what the Bible says. But then as you're going, as you go conversations, as you walk by the way, as you drive down the road in the minivan, as you go to the grocery store, as you sit in the restaurant, whatever it is, teach them about God. Teach them about the truth of God. If you don't do it, I don't know who will. And the third one, he says, when you lie down and when you rise. I love this built-in, natural, daily rhythm that God has designed, that God has set up in his creation. And Moses highlights on this. He says, yes, when you sit in your house, teach them about God. As you go about your day, teach them about God. When you get up in the morning and when you go to bed, teach them about God. I'm going to I'm going to give you an example from one of my mentors. It's a guy that I respect. It's a guy that I love. Every time I'm around this guy, I want to know Jesus better. Every time I'm around this guy, my passion for ministry just goes through the roof, and my excitement for discipleship of the next generation just explodes every single time. His name is Dr. Richard Ross, and he's a seminary professor in Texas. And this man loves Jesus. This man, he's the type of guy that if he tells you he's going to pray for you, that means every morning at like, Four o'clock in the morning, your name is going to come up as he walks around his neighborhood. And he shared this example with a class that I've never, never forgotten. He says, you know, it's really normal for those of you with little kids to tuck them in at night. It's really normal for you parents with little kids or grandparents raising kids and they come stay at your house. It's really normal for you to tuck in your kids. There's almost, I've never met somebody that would kind of, kind of disregard that practice, Right. Even people who don't know anything or want anything to do with God would say, yeah, even for development, you need to tuck your, your kids need a routine at night. Tuck them in, read them a story. For Christians, man, it's, it's like a softball. The softball's on the tee and you're ready to knock it out of the park. We're going to read something from the Bible. We might sing a song and kiss them, pray for them, put them to bed. Ten-minute process. And he says, and that's good and right. That, that's good and right. Do that, parents of young children, grandparents of young children. But what happens when they get a little older? and they get a little cooler, right? The thought of tucking them in, per se, when they're 12 or 13 or 14 or 18, are you serious? But he says, they, they look at you like you're crazy, but he says, which one needs it more? The answer's both, but which one never gets it? The teenager. And they sh- they're looking at you. I was a youth pastor for the last eight years. I, I, I've seen it. They look at you like you're the dumbest person that's ever existed on the whole planet, right? I don't know why that is. It just typically happens. And I'm not saying you, you bust out a, a bedtime story and tuck them in, give them a little kiss on the forehead. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what about an intentional time set aside to close the day out with even your older kids? What about even your grown kids on a phone call to wrap the day? Do they need it? Absolutely. What about at night? Is there a time at night when you can talk about who God is? The answer is biblically, practically, yes. What about in the morning? Dr. Ross also told me an example one time that just stuck with me. He said, imagine 
that your kid's in a Sunday school class, like some of them are right now. Imagine they're in a Sunday school class and, and they hear a message. Maybe the message from like Matthew eleven twenty eight. you know. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Sunday school teacher, him or her, they're, they're really giving it all that they have. They're teaching with the passion, all the passion that they can muster up, and they've studied. They're one of these rare Sunday school teachers that studied every day of the week leading up to it, right? Instead of guys like me, sometimes when I taught Sunday school, it was like Saturday night, unfortunately. They've studied every day. They're passionate. They believe it. And when they read it devotionally and studied to teach it formally to these Sunday school students, they are, you can feel the passion in the room. And they're teaching your kids or your grandkids about the rest that's provided in Jesus Christ, the freedom that's provided in Jesus Christ, what he offers to people. Do you think that your kids will remember that passion? I think so. Do you think that they'll remember the message? Maybe. Maybe. I can confidently tell you that although I was raised in Christian school and church, every Christian camp you can imagine, and all of those different things and heard thousands of lessons and thousands of sermons and all these things, I can tell you with as much honesty as I can muster up that I don't remember a single one of them. That's not meant to discourage you. It's not meant to discourage you. But it's meant to tell you that it's got to be more than just the teaching. That's a side note. But let me, let me give you another example. That's a, thank God for that Sunday school teacher, by the way. Thank God for that Sunday school teacher, by the way. People will be saved under his ministry. People will be discipled under his Thank God. I'm not denigrating that in any way. But I want you to picture another scenario. Dad wakes up or granddad wakes up earlier than everybody, with, with, which with little kids is pretty tough to do, right? Our kids don't know about when the sun comes up. It's just, it's just if we want to sleep in on a Saturday, no, I'm sorry. It's not happening, you know? And uh, snacks are demanded, right? But you as a dad or a grandfather or, or a mom or a grandmother, you wake up before everybody else, and you've got a routine. You, know, you don't do it perfectly, but you try. And you wake up in the morning, and you go to the Word. And that reading that morning is Matthew 11, 28. You read it. Maybe you only read that one verse, and it hits you like a ton of bricks. It hits you like a ton of bricks. You go, you're already a believer, but you see that message from your master, from your Lord, from your Savior, from your Messiah, and you go, thank God for your grace. Thank God for your strength. Thank God that you pursued me, Jesus. Thank God that you set me free. And it just you're sitting there with your cup of coffee and oatmeal, and it's just, it just gets you. And, you can't, and you're so thankful for it. And when you pray to God after you finish that oatmeal, you go, thank you, God, for your gentleness. Thank you, God, for your welcoming. Thank you, God, that you pursued me when I didn't want you. And then the, the stuff starts happening. The, the bunk bed, you hear, you hear people coming down the ladder on the bunk bed. You hear people coming up from the basement. You hear, people come up, and what's the first thing that they ask for? Bacon. You know, like, how quickly can I have bacon? You know? You just had this amazing time in the throne room of Jesus Christ, and then, I want a snack. You know, like, it just, it almost, it's almost abrasive. And you go, you know what, yeah, I'll go make you some bacon. You know, I'll make you some eggs and bacon or something like that. But let me tell you, and, like, while you're cooking the eggs and putting them in front of them, you know, I'll tell you something. I read something this morning that blew my mind. Remember, it's a dad, it's a grandfather, it's a mom, it's a grandmother. Honey, I, I, I heard, I read something this morning that blew my mind. I was in the throne room of Jesus, I believe. But based on what Hebrews 4 talks about, I was, I was in the presence of God. You know, I read something from the book that he gave us. And I was reminded that Jesus loved me and provided rest for me. And I just thought that was awesome. 
continues making eggs. Which one do you think the kid will remember? I would challenge you today that I think that that memory would never leave your child. Why? Because God has designed you to be the primary influencer on your kids in regards to discipleship. Like you say, but hey, Pastor Dave, he's got a seminary education. This man was a missionary. This man is a pastor. This man is an evangelist. This man is an expositor of the word of God. He can do it better than me. God's word would say, that's not how it works. It's not a one or the other. It's a both. But so much of our Christian culture says, Dave, you go do it. Sunday school teacher, you got it right? You got it? Christian school teacher, all right, cool. You, you got it? No, no. Moses would say with joy and just, just the way it is, Christian parent, as you sit in your house, teach them about God. As you go about your way, teach them about God. As you, as you get up in the morning, teach them about God. As you go to bed at night, teach them about God. More specifically, teach them the commands of God. You will never do it perfectly, and yet God calls you to do it. Your impact that you could have, even though you feel like you can't, and even though your failures make you think that you can't, I would challenge you, you're a child, you're a product of grace. You never were able to do it in the first place, and yet God calls you to do it, and you are covered, surrounded in grace. Let's put it this way. If God, through Moses and in so many other places in the Scripture, says, parents, disciple your children, Proverbs 22, 6, parents, Train up your children the way they should go, and they, should, and they will not depart from it. Ephesians 6, 4, diligently, right? Don't exasperate your children, fathers, but train them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. If he calls you to do something, you know what he'll do? He won't abandon you to the task. He will not abandon you in what he's called you to do, even though it seems impossible. But Moses continues to go as he instructs the people that are about to go into this foreign land that God has given them. He says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You know what's so fascinating about this? Is for thousands of years, those who practice Judaism have taken these words literally. What do I mean? He says right away, he says, You shall bind them as a sign of your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. There are these things that I'm going to mispronounce them, so forgive me, but a phylactery. Or in in Judaism, it's called a, a telephin. Right, And I'm probably butchering that, and I apologize if you're an expert there. But a telephone. And you've seen this. If you've seen pictures of those that practice Judaism in Jerusalem praying at the Western Wall or the Weeping Wall, right? And they've got these black boxes on their foreheads. Or they have a black box often right here, and they've got leather wrapping around their arm and coming all the way to the tip of their middle finger. What This is a literal, literal application of this command and others in the Pentateuch and others in the first five books of the, of the Bible. Literally, those that practice Judaism, they, they have these things made. And when I was a kid and I would see pictures of these, I would think it was just like a, like a plastic box or something that like you just buy at a store. No, like these are made from leather from kosher animals, and they take forever to make. Like it's a long process. It's an artisan putting them together, made of leather and stained black and then printed with uh, the first letter of Shema right at the beginning. And inside of these boxes is included scripture, like actual, like little scrolls of scripture put into these boxes, right? Which one of them is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. One of them is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and there are others, but at least this one's in there. As a literal interpretation of this passage, they literally put a black box here on their forehead. That's the between your eyes piece for them. And it's supposed to be symbolism for 
all that I think about in my mind, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's those words of God that are put right there on the head to symbolize devotion to God with the mind. The left arm is connected to the heart, right? And even the box, a lot of time, with the leather wrapped around, the box is kind of strapped on with the letter, and it's actually leather, and it's actually pointing at the heart as a symbolism that it's not just the mind, it's the heart, that Shema. We're not just hearing and just keeping the information, we're applying it with our lives. And you see these people with a lot of zeal and a lot of discipline and a lot of ritual and routine at the Western Wall, praying prayers and reciting different Hebrew scripture in the original language, and they've got these kind of funny-looking things on them, right? These symbols, that's all they are, symbols of their devotion to God. And we as Christians, we know, do you have to do that? Of course not. Is that the point of this passage? Probably not. Probably not. Even Jesus refers to these, these phylacteries. He says to the Pharisees in in Matthew chapter 23, this whole chapter is just filled with Jesus confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, these guys that knew the Bible backwards and forwards, literally. And he would say, that's why you see the Pharisees enlarge their phylacteries and they lengthen their tassels on their robes, which is another a reminder of the commands of God. He says, he doesn't condemn them wearing them. He says they enlarge them for what? So that people will see their religious practices. So that people will look and see and they'll say, wow, that Pharisee is righteous. You know, some people could do that today, you know. Like wear an oversized bedazzled cross, right? Like an oversized just gaudy cross. Or I grew up in the 90s and it was really popular, the WWJD bracelets here and, and even there were clothing companies. And I'm not saying those are bad. But I'm saying there are people that solely do religious practices just so that other people will see how righteous they are. And I'm saying, although I'm not advocating for us to have somebody custom make us a telephone, I am saying that if you need something to remind you of who God is, what he's done, and what he's commanded you to do since we live in Canaan, do whatever you need to do to remind you of that. But don't trust the ritual. Don't trust the ritualism of that. It's just a symbol that helps them. What might help you? I I know, guys, that this is something that is true for me. There are certain worship songs. There are certain hymns. There are certain preachers. There there are certain things within Christendom that really stir up my affections for God. There's a short list of songs that I have that, for many reasons, they're connected to my story, the biblical truth that they talk about. I purposely put them on in different seasons of my life when I want my affections for Christ to be stirred and to just remind me of who God is and what he's done for me. And so I would say these people, although they they apply this literally and it's so easy for us to judge them, I wonder if we need just something. It doesn't have to be something like that, but just something to remind us on a daily basis of the goodness of God. I'm not telling you that you should recite Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 every morning and every evening, but would it help you? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But the message that Moses is giving, the real meaning, I do not believe that Moses is saying, hey, the primary meaning of this text is for you to have custom-made leather boxes and leather straps made for you so that you'll remember God. He's saying you, regardless of how it happens, your heart, your mind, your strength, your body has to be centered on and based on the fact that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Moses is saying, this is your 
slogan. This is your marching cry. This is your unifying message that you are the people of God. And I would tell you, Calvary Derby Hill, that you are as well. Included in the commonwealth of Israel, Paul would say. He keeps going. He says, as frontlets between your eyes, we talked about that. He says, you should write them on the doorposts of your house and in your gates. One of the most godly men that I know, he's an auto mechanic in, in East Texas. And liter- he took this verse literally. And he got this passage and he got a permanent marker. And he wrote it on the door frame of his front door. So every time he goes out of the front door, he sees the Shema. Every time he walks out of the front door. Is Moses saying that you need to do that? Do you need to do that as a Christian? No, it's, you don't have to. You're covered in grace and there's, there's no ritualism needed. But you know what happens every time my friend Christian walks through that front door? What is he reminded of? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every time he walks out of that door, he goes, God is alive. And he's active. And he's with me. Every time he walks through that door, he reminds himself, I'm supposed to teach that to these guys, to my kids. I'm not saying that you need to do that. But, you know, historically, those that practice Judaism have done that. It's called a mezuzah. And, they, and lots of people have them. It's like this, it's like this, a lot of times they're really beautiful. I look them up. They're like these silver, a lot of times, or, you know, ornate little plaques that you would literally screw on or nail on to your door frame. And a lot of people that practice Judaism, as they walk out the door, they'll, they'll touch it, kind of like I did in high school when I was walking onto the soccer field and I would slap the, slap the goal post, and it was like a ritual. So many, for so many of them, it is just that. It's a ritual. You walk out the door, it's the Shema. It's the thing that you say every day. You touch it and you walk out the door. Some of them touch it and then kiss their lips and touch it back again or some, some form of that. And again, we look at that and we go, oh, come on. But you know what? We're on the other side of the cross. We know the full story. We know the name of the Messiah. And for those of us that are believers in the room today, it might not need to be Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. It might need to be your life verse. It might need to be whatever it is. I don't know. But you need to know that that is not the primary meaning of this text. If you want to do it, go ahead and do it. Physical signage. Physical bracelets, I've had bracelets before, some sort of song that you listen to every morning, or if you want to write it on your, be free, do it, you're covered in grace. If that stirs up your affections for the Lord, do it. If it reminds you to train your children in the discipleship of the Lord, by all means, do it. But what I would tell you is Moses' clear meaning here is that your strength, your mind, your heart, everything about who you are as a person Even what people see when they enter into your home and what people see when they exit your home. Literally, everything about you is supposed to be centered on who God is, what he's done, and what we're supposed to do with it. Remember, this isn't just an isolated text. These folks are about to head into Canaan. And if you've read ahead, there's many battles coming. And if you've read ahead, there are way more powerful nations with swords and shields and and, and horses, I mean, the whole thing in front of them, that by all human stretches of the imagination, these, the Israelites are going to get squashed like bugs. But since God is with them, they overcome. Do you see the necessity, do you see the, the vital nature of these people repeating the commands of God to themselves and repeating the commands of God to their children? But I want to comfort you with something that I've already said. I want to comfort you with something. You can't do it. You can't do any of this in your own strength. 
you might hear a message like this. Or you might hear something, a message like on your marriage from Ephesians 5. Or you might hear a message on evangelism. Or you might hear a message about from Psalm 119 about the passion for God's word and how you should have it. And what you need to know is in your own strength, you can't do it. But Jesus did. Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 5, we see, I think it's verse 17, where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus wasn't against the law. He, like David, loved the law of God. And you know what? He obeyed it perfectly. Although he was tempted, he did not sin and obeyed the law of God perfectly, making him a worthy and right sacrifice for our sins. And because Jesus has done this, because Jesus has obeyed the law of God perfectly and died the death that you deserve because of the sin that you committed. What sin? You disobeyed the Ten Commandments. You sinned against God and it separated you from Him. God, through Jesus, fulfilled the requirements of the law and Jesus also took your place on the cross knowing that you couldn't do it. I say with full clarity as a representative of family time training and as a, as a member, as an eventual member of a Calvary church in Inglewood, Colorado, as a, as, a, as a brother of yours in the faith, with joy, you can't do it. But because of what Jesus has done, you can. You'll fail all the time. But that's not reason to stop. It's not reason to not try. There was one of my friends, he, he tried to do family worship for a little bit. He tried to carry on some of these principles from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and, and many other places in the scripture. And he texted me one time. He said, hey, I tried family worship for the first time today. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I sent him a text back. That's so cool. It takes so much courage. Like, it's a big idea. Like, it's hard, especially if you've never done it before. And it's, it's just, even just trying it, it takes so much courage. And he said, and it ended in a spanking. And in his mind, he's a failure. And I was rejoicing with God. Why? He tried. He took Ephesians 6.4. He took Proverbs 22.6. He took Psalm 78. He took Deuteronomy 6. And he goes, God, I don't understand all this, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try by your grace. You know, one time uh, Jesus was confronted with some Pharisees. And it just seems like over and over and over again, like people were just always trying to trip him up, weren't they? They would try to trip him up, and then when he would befuddle them with his wisdom and authority, what would they try to do next? They'd say, we've got to figure out how to kill this guy. Like, I mean, like every single time, like, all right, let's plot together and let's try to destroy this guy because clearly he's wooing the crowd. Like, clearly he's performing miracles in the whole nine yards. And all of a sudden, they would come, he would, he would tell them the truth, and it would just shock them. And you know one time, these guys came to him. This is in Matthew chapter 22, verse uh, 30, 37. They came to him and they asked him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Hey, out of all the Ten Commandments, Jesus and any others that the Pharisees and the religious tradition had added, what's the greatest commandment? They want to trip him up so that he'll say something and then they'll be able to catch him, right? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Did you know that Jesus studied Deuteronomy? Did you know that Jesus didn't, just because he was God, just come and just know it? We know that he was in the synagogue and he was learning and he was memorizing 
Do you think that those Pharisees knew immediately what passage he was referring to? Yeah, twice a day, man. Phylacteries, mezuzah, you know, the telephone, mezuzah, all of it. They know the Shema, and he says, I could just picture it. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And one of my favorite authors, he said one time, he goes, in this, in this statement, Jesus kind of jukes them in a way that they didn't anticipate. The guy asks him, he says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, all of them. Why? The first four commandments in the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship, humans' relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. The commands six through ten all deal with people's relationships with each other. Do not murder. Do not covet. Do not steal. So in a funny way, in hindsight, Jesus gets asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he goes, yes. (laughs) What's the point? The point is today there's an amazing opportunity ahead of you. It's filled with trouble. It's filled with pain. It's filled with confusion. It's filled with not feeling like you know what you're doing. It's filled with thinking your your logic just screams and it just goes, there's got to be a better way. Like there's got to be an easier way. And, And God would say, parent, grandparent, teach them about me. Because if you don't, literally, guys, who else will? With just the people in this room, I'm sure that Dave and his wonderful family and the other leaders in this church, if you came to them, or if the city of Loveland came to them in a miraculous Nineveh kind of way and said, hey, Dave, disciple this town. Disciple this town. Dave would do everything that he could do to get out there and see that happen. But is it physically possible? I would say no. And I have freedom to say that because that's not God's design. Instead, what Dave's role is, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 12, is to equip you to do what we're talking about today. And to partner alongside you to be teaching your kids the same things. That's God's design. As we end today, the statement that might seem weird to you might go like, hey, I can't do it. Like, I'm supposed to come to church and be encouraged. Like, I'm supposed to, I can't, you're telling me, I can't do it. Full on, you can't. But praise God that the righteous died for the unrighteous. Praise God that our Savior is perfect and proved it and obeyed it perfectly. Because you can't. And in the same breath, I would say, you can't do this. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, you can teach your kids about God, and in your broken words, and in your constant failing, he will see kids saved. He will see grandkids saved and discipled. He will see, for those of you that have grown kids that want nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will see prodigal sons return, prodigal daughters return. And you're, all you're thinking is, I hope a biblical expert comes along so that that'll happen. No. If you don't do it, who else will? And there's beauty in it. There's joy in it. I pray with all of my heart that my daughters know Jesus someday. It's my, if I had to be honest with you, it's my only hope that my kids know Jesus. But that's up to God. But you know what I'm going to do in the meantime? With failing all the time, friends, I'm going to do my best to teach them who God is. And I'm going to do my best to teach them what he did in my life. 
and I'm going to do my best to show them what the grace of Jesus Christ means and the beauty of the law of God for their flourishing. I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to do so in a very specific way, and, and, and we're going to get ready to sing and worship. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I mean, it's not like an invitation or anything like that. I, I would say to you, back to what Moses said at the beginning of this passage, love the Lord your God with all your heart. If, if as you're listening to this today, you go, I don't know who Jesus is. I've never met him. All the stuff that you're talking about today, I don't like Jesus. I don't, I don't, he seems like a religious figure. I don't know. I would say to you today, what I said is absolutely true, that Jesus came because of your sin and mine. He died on the cross because of your sin. But before that, he lived a perfect life in full obedience and fulfillment of the law. And then he died, like fully died. He was fully dead in history a couple thousand years ago. Literally died on a Roman cross and was put in a tomb in the earth, completely dead. And by the power of the Holy Spirit was raised from the dead, conquering death and hell in one fell swoop. So that you could be reconciled with God. You could be bought out of a lifestyle of death and be redeemed into a new life. What Paul would say, made alive. If you want to become a Christian today, I would say, do not wait. Turn to Jesus Christ today and turn away from your sin. Put your faith in him for this life and for eternity. Don't wait anymore. Do it today. But as I lead you in a prayer in just a minute, we're going to spend some time just praying for your kids and your grandkids. You close your eyes. Father, I, I thank you for these people. God, I thank you that, that you're merciful to us, and I thank you, Lord, that you're, you're patient with us. And even though we fail all the time, I'm so thankful that because of your grace that's been offered through the new covenant, covenant, you cause us to walk in your statutes. You cause us to walk in your ways. And no, we can't do it in our own strength, but God, through this power of the Holy Spirit, people can be discipled and laws can be obeyed. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that we didn't have to earn our salvation. We thank you, Lord, that it's only by grace that we're saved and in a right relationship with you. But, God, I want to pray for the kids that are represented by this, these families. God, I want to pray for the, the grandkids that are represented by these grandparents. Father, I pray with all of my heart that you would give boldness to these moms and dads and granddads and, and, and grandmothers that they would just be willing to speak, that they would be willing to share their faith with their kids, that they would be willing to share their story with their kids. Father, I pray that you'd have mercy on them and that you would send brothers and sisters like Dave, like the leaders in this church, like community group leaders, like everybody, to come alongside them and say, no, you can't do it, but God can, and we're here with you. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Now, those of you in the in the auditorium, and even those of you that are listening online, I want you to take a moment, and if you have the blessing of being next to a spouse, um, um, and if you've got kids or grandkids, or even if you don't, you've got nieces and nephews, and even if you don't have that, you see that there are other kids in this church. I would ask you to, out loud to your spouse, I would ask you to pray for those kids by name. You don't have to do it in some big way. You can whisper it to them, but I want to encourage you to pray for them by name, loud enough to where your wife or your husband can hear. Pray for your kids and grandkids for just a moment.
God, I love the prayers of your people. I pray that we could see a revival in home discipleship. I pray that parents and grandparents could, could begin to see kids getting saved in their living rooms. And, and I pray that parents and grandparents would feel the freedom to open their, their mouths, their hearts, their minds, their strength, just to share just what you've done in their own lives and also what your scripture tells us about you. God, thank you for the prayers that were just given for kids and grandkids and relatives. God, I pray for these parents as they, as they seek to try something and, and it doesn't quote-unquote work. God, I pray that they would be given your grace, surrounded by your grace and reminded that they didn't earn their way to you and they can't manufacture discipleship with their kids. God, I pray that they would be free to just share who you are with those that you've given them and that you've trusted them with. God, as we get ready to worship you today, again, God, I pray that we would be very aware of your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of being able to love you. God, we trust you with the rest of our service today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.